This episode of Outlines contains content which some listeners may find distressing, so as always, discretion is advised. Today's case starts one afternoon in April of 1973, when Kenneth Newing, an ex-serviceman turned fitter, sat down at his home in Campsy Close, Basingstoke, to watch some afternoon TV. By chance... He flicked over to the programme Doing Things, A Day at the Auction, which featured shots taken the previous year at a pony sale in the market town of Watton in Norfolk. As he watched the show, his eyes casually scanned the crowd until he spotted someone who seemed familiar, a boy whose face seemed to jump right out at him. There's Stephen, there's Stephen, he screamed, reaching for the phone to dial the police. The police who took Mr Newing's call were quick to contact Anglia TV, who confirmed that the film was at their studios. Jean Newing, Kenneth's ex-wife, was brought in by the police to view the same clip and immediately identified the boy as Stephen. Standing there at the pony sale, 12 miles away from Jean's home, the boy, who was flanked by two men, was just part of the crowd but Kenneth and Jean Newing both recognised him instantly. That was their son Stephen, and he had been missing for the past four years. Jean said, Both I and the police officer picked the same boy in the crowd. She went on to tell the papers that Stephen had always been very fond of horses, saying, It certainly bears an uncanny resemblance. Kenneth Newing agreed. He said, It was the way his hair curled around the forehead that I noticed most. His facial features and even his ears looked the same. The following Thursday, Jean and a handful of police officers formed part of the crowd at the yard in Watton where the pony sale was being held. They were there to look for any traces of Stephen, except that he was not there. And when police were eventually able to trace the boy in the TV show... It was determined that he was not Stephen at all. While he did bear an uncanny resemblance, this boy hailed from the small West Norfolk village of Outwell and had been visiting the show with relatives. At the time, Kenneth told the Reading Evening Post that Although it has been proved that the boy was not Stephen, I feel a lot of good could come out of this because it has reopened the case. It has been a terrible job to keep the police interested in the case after such a long time, but I'm hoping that the publicity may trigger off something in someone's mind which would ultimately lead to Stephen being found. In 2019, Stephen's brother Terry spoke to the papers. He said, It is now 50 years since my brother disappeared. I was the last person to see him, And not a day goes by that I do not think of him and try to work out what happened. The effects of this have been profound on all our family. Our parents have since died without knowing what happened and Stephen has an extended family who never met him, knowing only of him from newspaper cuttings and hearsay. However, I still believe that even with the passage of time, the answers we need are there and I would urge anyone with any knowledge of his disappearance, no matter how trivial or insignificant, to please contact the police so that we can do something our parents were unable to, lay him to rest, 
and get the closure we need. It's been 52 years now since 11-year-old Stephen Newing vanished while out playing near his home in the market town of Fakenham in Norfolk. I'm Jess Carter and this is the Outlines podcast. Stephen's parents, Jean Haggerty and Kenneth Newing, were married in Fulham in January of 1954. Kenneth was a serviceman with the RAF and the couple were moved around on a regular basis. On April the 15th, 1958, in Blackpool, their first son, Stephen Paul Newing, was born. He didn't remain an only child for long, though, with his brother Terry being born just over a year later. By the time Stephen was six years old, Jean and Kenneth had divorced, and Jean and her young sons had moved to Fakenham in Norfolk, where they lived in a council house at 60 Lee Warner Avenue. Not long after she arrived in Fakenham, Jean gave birth to her third child, a daughter, and the year after Stephen disappeared, she welcomed a fourth, her second daughter. Stephen was known to be a likeable boy, He had a sunny disposition, a constant smile and a love of the countryside. He'd even been known to work the fields sometimes during the harvest season. When he was seven, he suffered a fall which led to ongoing problems with his elbow, which would come out of joint and on several occasions had had to be reset. At the time of his disappearance, aged 11, he was described as being of medium build with a fresh complexion. He stood four foot ten inches tall and had a large round freckled face with a flat nose, large ears, blue eyes and white teeth, which had also been reset following a kick to the face during a football game. Until the summer of 1969, he was a pupil at Fakenham Primary School and had been due to start at Fakenham Secondary Modern in the coming term, a move which his mother said he'd been apprehensive over. This year, during the August bank holiday, just three days before the 52nd anniversary of Stephen's disappearance, my partner and I visited Lee Warner Avenue. It's a quiet crescent of bungalows and terraced council houses, some solely red brick and some with pebble-dashed front sections. On the day we visit, the sky is a blank, overcast grey, and in the distance you can see the concrete crown of a water tower, one of two which would have stood in the area in 1969. As we pull over outside Stephen's old house, a solo young boy of about the same age as him cycles past our car. There is a colour photograph on the Norfolk Police website, where Stephen is showing his teeth in a half-smile, and the way he looks in that photograph is how I picture him on the day he disappeared. And as the boy rides past the car... 
he reminds me for a moment of Stephen. The day he vanished, he was dressed in a blue roll-neck sweater with a yellow-green sweater and a green anorak on top of that. He had blue jeans with a Cubs leather belt and baseball boots. The exact timeline of that day seems to change with each telling, but I'll try my hardest to get the facts as straight as possible. The morning of Tuesday the 2nd of September, he was out on foot, playing with friends in the area of Lee Warner Avenue. He was due to go to a friend's house for dinner, and his mother told him not to be home any later than 10pm. The previous day, he'd found a white mouse in a neighbour's garden and spent some time on the Tuesday showing off the mouse to his friends. In 2019, Norfolk and Suffolk cold case manager Andy Guy said, People may not remember seeing an 11-year-old boy 50 years ago, but they might remember an 11-year-old with a white mouse. A lot of Stephen's movements that day remain unaccounted for but we know that he continued to play in the area until mid-afternoon, because the last confirmed sighting was at about 3pm. 20 minutes before his mother was due home from work, his brother Terry and a male friend saw him in Lee Warner Avenue. After this, his movements remain a mystery. It wasn't until after eight, as night began to draw in, that his mother began to get worried, and according to the Norfolk Police's website, by 10pm she had reported him missing. Speaking in 1994 in a special feature to mark the 25th anniversary of her son's disappearance, Jean told them that the first night had been the worst of her life. She went on to say that by morning she knew that Stephen was never going to come home again. She said there was no reason for him to go away. He was no angel, just a mischievous boy, but I loved him. One of the saddest things about this case is to read the different interviews that Jean Newing gave over the years, because her version of how she felt that night seems to reflect whichever theory she was pursuing at the time, and so with each telling it is slightly different. According to an interview from 2002, to begin with, Jean was convinced that her son had been abducted, Stephen Newing's disappearance took place 22 miles away and just shy of five months after the vanishing of April Fab, whose case I covered two weeks ago. Despite their geographical and chronological proximity, no official links were ever made between the two cases at the time. As a matter of fact, when I came to research Stephen's disappearance, I was surprised to find that there was very little newspaper coverage from the days immediately after he vanished. This was a direct contrast to April's case, where it appeared as if almost immediately it became Norfolk's number one news story. The first news story I could find was dated Friday, September 5th, 1969, two full days after he vanished. The story gives a little biographical information the timeline of his disappearance, and some details of the search efforts. Despite the lack of press coverage, police had launched a full-scale investigation which included house-to-house inquiries, interviews with acquaintances, as well as the all-too-familiar countryside searches. They scoured the nearby River Wensum and Hempton Green, 
where every year on the first Wednesday in September, the largest sheep fair in the country was held. In 1969, the fair would have taken place the day after Stephen went missing. I've managed to find footage from that sheep fair in the BFI's archives. In a silent four-minute amateur clip, thought to be from 1969, the camera pans slowly over the mown grass of the green and onto a series of livestock vehicles and pens filled with sheep. Men in grey suit jackets are with their shirt sleeves rolled up and the occasional woman mill about, and girls and boys stand around the wooden pens eyeing up the goods or leaping in for closer inspection. As a tightly packed parade of sheep make their way through a central run, a blonde-haired boy stands just to the side. Others with similar hairstyles to Stephen seem to mill in and out of the crowds. As I watch the footage, my viewing is tainted by the knowledge that in the following days the search across that green would be intensive. Despite the fact that at the time the man in charge of the case, Chief Inspector Ray Cordy, is quoted as saying, We have no reason to believe that he is there on the green. We now know that one early police theory was that Stephen was kidnapped by people who one newspaper calls gypsies, who were thought to be visiting the fair that year, or ones who were working as fruit and vegetable pickers in the area. As far as I can tell, there is nothing to support that theory except for a long-standing prejudice towards travellers, and any leads that seem to have been followed up on in that vein seem to have led nowhere. The footage of the sheep fair, though, serves as an invaluable insight into the Fakenham area at the time of Stephen's disappearance. As well as the River Wensum and Hempton Green investigations, police also conducted searches of Stephen's home, twice combing the property at 60 Lee Warner Avenue, reportedly in case the boy was hiding there. While this search again turned up nothing, as they scoured the local area, they did find one small but important clue. I can't actually find any mention of this from the news coverage at the time, but the Norfolk Police's website states that his satchel was found at a water tower near his home. I've done some research into this, and while there is still one water tower standing today, back in 1969 there would have been two in the same area, with one having been demolished in 2012 to make way for affordable housing. There is nothing to say which tower the satchel was found under. The closer of the two appears to have been demolished, but both were well within a comfortable walking distance. On the day that we visit the area, we stop by the surviving structure. There's something which fascinates me about water towers. They remind me of artists Bernard and Hilla Becher, whose work comprised series of photographs of industrial structures, water towers, gas tanks, blast furnaces. This particular tower feels very much like one that would have caught their eye. It stands amongst more European-style new-build houses and flats, and is tall enough to be seen from a distance. This particular tower has a series of long and thin concrete feet in a circle around a larger mid-trunk, which in turn supports a chunky cylindrical tank. The whole thing feels out of place amongst the new flats and residential streets. 
I filmed the short drive from Stephen's home to Holt Road where it stands and when we stop the car, I get out to take a photo. As I take one more through the windscreen, a group of kids of around Stephen's age approach us. Nice car, they say to my partner. It's a Ford Focus and I don't want to tell him that I think they're taking the piss. Something about the juxtaposition of the tower and the surroundings, mixed with the oppressive humidity in the air that day, gives a strange sense of the uncanny. The area around us might have changed dramatically from Stephen's day, but the kids and the tower, and the fact that we are visiting so close to the anniversary of the day he went missing, causes me to be overcome with a strange sense of malaise that takes a while to shift. Over the years, theories about what happened the day that Stephen disappeared have ranged from kidnap to murder, to accidental death. The latter being one of the more pervasive theories in those considered by Jean Newing. In 1980, the Daily Mirror published a story which began with a line, Jean Newing is haunted by the thought that the body of her 11-year-old son could be at the bottom of a deep well. The story, which apparently originated in a pub one drunken night around 1979, centred on the site of a former sawmill, now Driftland's housing estate, close to the Holt Road water tower. The theory which began to circulate at around that time said that Stephen had been playing in the abandoned sawmill that day when he slipped or was pushed down an on-site well. Police had apparently thoroughly searched the area at the time and found that it was actually impossible to pinpoint the exact location of the well. This was not a problem shared by Mr and Mrs Eric Mack of 29 The Drift, who by 1979 had noticed that every winter it appeared as if a section about four foot from the back of their house seemed to sink by nine inches or so. About a foot below the garden's surface, they found the brick shell of the well, which reportedly was around a hundred foot deep. Mr Mack told a journalist at the time that the rumour about Stephen ending up in the well was started by a man who got too drunk. It seems that despite the fact that police have stated again and again that they have traced the well's history and established that it was filled in before 1969 and that it had been thoroughly investigated and discounted, the fact that they never excavated the site means that the rumour still persists even to this day. Chief Inspector Ray Cordy said in 2002, To begin with, it was a routine missing persons inquiry, but after a week it became much more serious. I formed the view, and still believe it, that Stephen had been abducted. Evidence of this shift in opinion can be seen in the statements given to the press by members of the police force. By October 3, 1969, the papers are reporting that police believe that by that point Stephen may have become established somewhere and that the public should keep a sharp lookout for him. By January of 1970, it was being reported that they were asking travelling showmen and itinerants to let them know if they had come into contact with Stephen and befriended him without realising the concern his parents were feeling. Since his disappearance, 300 posters had been circulated around the UK, 
and there were periodic reports cropping up of boys answering his description being seen in various locations around the east of the country. The Norfolk Police website says that, although there were many potential sightings of Stephen at the time of his disappearance, including in King's Lynn and the Sutton Bridge area of Lincolnshire, nothing significant has been discovered. There are a few well-reported sightings of Stephen for us to go on. One of those took place on the evening of the day he disappeared, when a friend thought he saw him walking on his own near the junction of the A149 close to Hindringham. The A149 runs along the North Norfolk coast, and the point where Stephen was supposedly spotted was more than eight miles away from his home. This sighting has never been verified. Neither have the Sutton Bridge or King's Lynn ones, although I found another 2002 quote from Ray Cordy in which he said, We never got any further up than Lincolnshire, despite extensive inquiries. I was convinced that the woman was right when she said she had seen a boy fitting Stephen's description. This is referring to a woman in a shop in Sutton, who had seen a boy who she was convinced was Stephen with a bearded man. This tied in with another sighting of a similar-looking boy seen with a bearded man in Kessingland in Suffolk. Unfortunately, neither lead took police any further with their inquiries. John Scott, a detective constable who worked with the Fakenham CID, said, Fakenham and the surrounding villages were a nice kind of community. I used to police the Great Ryber area, and once you got to know the people, they were very helpful to you but a lot of the tips given to the police with the best intentions led nowhere. As the years went on and still there were no leads, Jean Newing did what she could to keep Stephen in the public eye. His name doesn't come to mind as easily as that of April Fab, but the information I've gathered from news reports and other sources is mostly available because of Jean. Up until 2014, when she passed away, she was still pushing for police to follow up leads and was always looking for answers, no matter how awful they might be. Spurred on by the same retired police officer who linked April Fab's case to the convicted killer Robert Black, at the end of her life, Jean became convinced that Stephen had been a victim of convicted paedophile and murderer Sidney Cook. It has been alleged that Cook was working in the area at a travelling fairground under the name Hissing Sid, although any evidence for this appears to be circumstantial. Sadly, this is what Jean Newing died believing had happened to her son. She had apparently previously been shown a clip of a boy with a fairground worker as part of the investigation, and the theory connects in a number of ways with those investigated by police at the time. Andy Guy, who is in charge of the cold case review team, does not believe there is a connection although he is keen to remind people even now that his team will investigate any new and genuine leads. As I draw near to the end of this episode, I think a lot about Stephen's parents. After the 1973 incident where Kenneth believed he'd seen his son at the pony sale, not much information can be found about his life. He remarried a couple of times, the final marriage being in 1982. 
He was with his last wife, Joyce, up until his death in 2005. While researching Kenneth, I noticed that despite the fact that Joyce was only 66, she had died at roughly the same time as her husband. It was this which led me to the discovery of a sad coda in the life of Kenneth Newing. Just two days after his funeral, Joyce Newing was attacked in the early hours of the morning at her home in Pratt Street in Camden. The force of the knife attack was such that her head was almost severed from her body. The culprit, 27-year-old Kevin Harrigan, had known Joyce for almost ten years and had arranged to do a hundred pounds worth of decorating at her flat. Harrigan, who admitted murdering Joyce, was sentenced at the Old Bailey to life in prison. He had been attempting to rob Mrs Newing, and when she showed resistance, he'd murdered her. As for Jean Newing, up until her death, she continued to do her best to keep her son's case in the public eye, and to ensure his legacy. On Saturday the 14th of September 2002, at Fakenham Parish Church, a memorial for Stephen was officially dedicated and blessed. This was a seven-foot-high prayer candle with an ironwork stand in the shape of a flower and with trays for lighted candles. Jean Newing said of the memorial that, I really felt I wanted to have something in Stephen's memory, because without something tangible, it is as if he never existed. Although pain fades over the years, it can suddenly come back and hit you in the face, and it can sometimes be unbearable. Attending the service were family and friends, including Ron Bagshaw, the retired headmaster of Stevens Primary School, and Chief Inspector Ray Cordy, who stated that it was one of his biggest regrets that he was unable to solve the mystery. Family and friends were invited to light candles in Stephen's memory and to pray for him. Later, the hymn, All Things Bright and Beautiful, was sung. The following year, in May of 2003, a hostel for young, single, homeless people aged between 16 and 25 was opened in Fakenham. The Stephen Newing House operates as a supported accommodation centre with communal areas, ensuite rooms and a comprehensive support programme tailored to individual requirements. Jean Newing said of the hostel that It is wonderful and an honour for me and my family that the Hostel for Homeless Teenagers is to be named after Stephen. I am thrilled to bits and I think it's appropriate because this is a project which is helping vulnerable young people. Jean Newing died on the 1st of September 2014, the day before the anniversary of her son's death. She may have died never knowing what happened, but it isn't too late for her children and their families who still seek answers. In 2009, on the 40th anniversary of Stephen's disappearance, Jean said, I have never stopped thinking about him. I look at his picture and he is like my Peter Pan, the only one of my children who never grew old. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please consider supporting the show by signing up to Patreon. The next free episode of Outlines will be available on Monday the 3rd of January, but if you can't wait until then, 
A Patreon-exclusive episode is scheduled for release on Wednesday the 22nd of this month. You can find the link in the description box below, or go directly to www.patreon.com forward slash The Outlines Podcast. Patrons receive early access to full-length episodes, as well as exclusive monthly microcases and merchandise. With your support, I hope to make Outlines a viable long-term project. Thank you to my new and returning patrons, including Amy S., Melissa Hayes, Angela Seymour, Alan Myers, Sarah Elizabeth Cox, Chris Clark, Lillian Rose, Jeff Meadows, Mark Dubois, and Steve Sheen. This episode of Outlines was researched, written, performed and produced by Jess Carter. The music was composed by Elias Hardy. 